This is episode 58 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2010 Annual Enrichment Conference, Behold the Church, Gospel Communities on Mission. This is session three, Tuesday night, with Jeff Vanderstelt. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians 4. I love what he just said about letting us continue in worship. Uh, we had a, 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 what I love about uh, non-believers becoming Christians and you get to work with lots of baby Christians is they just don't know anything. And uh, so they don't have all the trappings. You know, we say lead worship and they don't know what we mean by that. And a young uh, a guy that's a good friend of mine now, he became a follower of Jesus this last year and I've been discipling him. Uh, one week he said, so um, who's leading worship this week? And I, I said the name of the guy who does music for us. He goes, really? I didn't know he knew how to do that. I said, what do you mean you don't know how he knew how to do that? He does it all the time. He's always up front leading songs. He goes, oh, no, I meant leading worship. I said, what are you talking about? He said, like you. I mean, like you lead us in worship every week. I said, you mean through my preaching and teaching? He goes, yeah. And I'm like, man, he's got it. <laughs> Not that singing isn't, but he got the idea that we made much of Jesus so we'd worship him. And that's what preaching is all about, right, is that we keep remembering it's all about Him. We bring people back to the Word to magnify Him. We glorify Him. So we better worship when people are preaching. In fact, I'd say, preachers, if people aren't, if their hearts aren't moved towards worship during preaching, it's probably because you're not speaking about anything that's worthy of worship. So you've got to talk about Jesus a lot because He is. So um, I, hopefully I'll do some of that tonight. Um, and he'll get magnified. Uh, but I am going to talk a bit, a bit about nuts and bolts of how we do some of this. Uh, Jesus' intent in Ephesians 1 is that he would be the head of his body, the church. He is the ultimate senior pastor. It's his desire that through his body, the church, he would fill all things in every way, and that the church would be the kind of people who bring the presence of Jesus to the places they live in in such a way that Jesus is glorified in all things. In fact, chapter 1 talks about the reason why we have what we have is so that we might be for the praise of His glorious grace. And that's the intent that God has for His church, is that every single member of the body of Christ would exist to be for the praise of His glorious grace in every place, in every way, so that no one can get away from the presence of Jesus through His people who both proclaim Him and live lives fully submitted to Him so that people can see what He's like. And that's really a picture. Paul has this really grand picture of what the church becomes. As he keeps teaching through, uh, writing through this, he, he says, you know, this is what happens is the church becomes the, ma- the, the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly realms uh, so that the angels and all those who are watching might see God's grand wisdom worked out in the church. As we become his people united, two men becoming one, the Jew and Gentile now becoming one person, one man in Christ, the new humanity. And this new humanity has a call, a particular call on them. And and it was already expressed through the worship, and that is that we would be united together, uh, that we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body. And the way that we're supposed to be united is that we would be committed together to, to the work and person of Jesus Christ and all that we do. And the, the role that some of us are given in this particular work that God is doing to make this people a display to the heavenly realms and to the world around them is that he's given some to the church. Chapter 4, 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for from for from the whole body joined and uh, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love i want to first of all remind all of you that your job by god giving you to the church is primarily to be the quippers of the saints that you are not to do the ministry for the church you're to, to equip the church to do the ministry and that needs to be a constant shift in your mind because the tendency will be for us as pastors, leaders, teachers, whatever role God might have us in, is to, to continue to take all the ministry that comes our way and do it all for the people because to some degree, all of us have to be honest with ourselves and say that we have a little bit of idolatry flowing through our blood in the sense that we love people to love us and we love people to need us. And so the idea that we'd release people to do the ministry and not be the only ones they always come to is oftentimes real hard for us. Uh, that may not be you, but that is part of what I struggle with. There's a part of me that believes if I don't do it, it won't be done well. But if I don't do it, uh, you know, then they mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what am I here for if I'm not doing that. Isn't that what they're paying me for? And you fall into all these traps and the scriptures tell you that the norm for you as a pastor is not that you're doing the ministry for the church, but you're equipping the church to do the ministry. And we just got to keep remembering that, that that's our job. And so the, the, the way that you ought to measure your job success in terms of are you being faithful to the gall that God's given you to put you in your church is asking yourself, is more ministry being done by people other than me or am I still doing the majority of the ministry around here? And then let's define what that ministry looks like. Uh, this, this idea that we would see people grow up into maturity in Christ, who is the head, this ministry looks like every member doing the work of ministry and mission, speaking the truth of lo in, in love to one another, so that everybody is actually able to build each other up in love. I don't know if you've ever read this passage and thought through what he's saying here is, when you and I do our job to equip the saints for works of ministry and they're actually doing ministry to each other, the body grows up that way. It doesn't grow up from you doing it. It grows up from you equipping the church to do it. And the church become then the, the equippers and the developers and the ministers in your church. Uh, as some oftentimes will say to people, every single Christian is a full-time paid minister of the gospel. The only difference is between me and you as I would speak to my church, is I get my paycheck and it has a logo that says Soma on it, and you get your paycheck and it has a logo that says Microsoft on it, but in both cases, God paid you to do ministry. And then we can start to help our people realize there's no distinction. Me being paid by the, the church, having God route money through the church, and them having God route money through Microsoft means we're both being provided by God so that we can be about his missionary work and we're all full-time missionaries and full-time ministers. That needs to be a way that we re-embrace the priesthood of the saints, that every believer is called to be a minister. 
And, and then what you do is you, you actually call your people to do the ministry that you would tend to do for them. This takes self-control. This takes discipline. takes patience. Because you want it to get it done now, right? And, and you know it's going to take longer to train people. And so what I want to ask tonight, because I'm going to jump quickly to the point. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking that idea. Because you all agree with that? Okay, y'all, okay, good. Then we'll move on. Um, the question is, what is the right environment in which you are to train up people for ministry? That's the question. I think a lot of us think that the best environment to train up people in ministry is this. And I'd tell you this is the worst environment to train up people for ministry. None of you are going to get trained tonight. Hopefully you're going to get changed tonight, but you're not going to get trained tonight. Because you don't get trained by getting information, you get trained by applying the information. You get trained by putting it into practice. Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. I'll be with you always. And the idea is not teach them everything I commanded you, it's teach them to obey everything I commanded you. And I don't know you, but with your kids, like with my son Caleb, for me to teach him how to ride a bike, I'm not sitting in the front room going, okay, this is what a bike looks like. And when you get on it, you got to learn about balance. And uh, just so you know, when you start pedaling, you're going to have to put your weight on those pedals. It's going to feel a little weird because you're going to feel like you're going to fall. But you're gonna, and, and I don't do, that's not how I teach my son to ride a bike. I get the guy on the bike and I go, okay, now start pedaling. Do you see how that feels? And then he falls. We go, okay, let's try that again. And we do it over and over and over so that he learns how to ride a bike by riding a bike. People don't learn how to do ministry in a classroom. If you're part of a seminary, I don't want to be negative on that. I just want, every seminary professor knows people don't learn how to be pastors at seminary. They learn how to be pastors in churches. They learn how to be theologians in seminaries, and they learn how to be pastors in churches. Because you don't know how to be a pastor until you actually do it. And so everybody that's training people in a seminary knows they've got to get people in the real stuff while they're going to class so they actually apply it in real life. Well, we ought to take that into the way we understand church and our job of equipping the saints. See, in Deuteronomy 6, this is what it looks like. This is how you train. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He just given the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So as you where we start, we're starting with a heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit, in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the best way you're going to train your children in how to obey what I've just given you is that you do it along the way of everyday life. Because that's where they have to live it. And as we think about the church, you think of Paul. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, the things which I taught you in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will be faithful to teach others as well. And that idea of faithfulness, how do you ever know if someone is faithful to what you've taught them? You have to see them do it. How do you know if your husbands or the men in your, in your church are being faithful husbands? You've got to watch them love their wives. How do you know if they're being faithful dads who raise up their children in the gospel? You're going to have to see it. How do you know if people know how to share their faith regularly? You're going to have to actually witness it. 
You know, you might say, well, if a lot of people come to Christ, that's evidence. It sure is. But are a lot of people coming to Christ in your churches? You might go, I don't know, maybe not. Well, then have you ever sat down and went with your people and actually seen if they know how to share the gospel with unbelievers? Maybe they don't even know how to. How are they ever going to learn if we don't go do it with them, if we don't show them, if we don't create an environment for them? And so we... At our church, and I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to try and promote what we do, but it's just it's my context, we realize the best place for people to get truly equipped is they've got to have three key things in, in, in mind when we do it. It's got to be in life. So somehow we've got to make sure all the training is happening more in life than it is in the classroom. Classroom's good. It's supplemental. It's not sufficient. Okay, you all believe that? Do you, really, do you know that when you preach on Sunday, that's not enough to equip your people to be good disciple makers? It just doesn't work. Because what they think, if they think that's all that it, it looks like, they think the way to make disciples is to get them to hear you preach. And then you're the prime disciple maker and you're the prime minister. They've got to have a different picture. So it's got to be in life. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, remember what he says to the Thessalonican church? You saw my life, how I lived amongst you. You watched what I did. I'm an example to you. What does he say to the elders? Elders, be examples to the flock in your care. Be amongst them, he says. That's how you elder the church. You don't elder them from a platform. You don't elder them in a classroom. You elder them in life. You have to be with them. Second, you're going to have to be in ministry. Peter, Paul says to Timothy, teach them like I did with you in the presence of many witnesses, teach them to be so that they might be faithful as well to do it with others. And if you know Paul's life, every bit of his training was happening on the fly. Jesus is a great example of this, of course. His whole life was on the way to Jerusalem and ministry along the way, and he was always discipling his, his little group of, of followers while he was doing ministry. It was always while he was doing it. It wasn't, I mean, he did stand up and speak and he did proclaim, but what does he do after he's done? Pulls him aside and says, okay, now let me tell you why I did that. And let me explain it to you so you really understand. And he doesn't just go, okay, you guys should all got that. Now let's move on and preach again. He stops and equips them in what he just did so that they'll know how to do it later. And that's his intent. I wonder, pastors, how many of you, the, the, the people that you're training up, after you get done doing a ministry event, you pull them aside, you maybe go out and have a coffee together, or in our context, we go might have a drink together, or whatever it may be that you do with your people. But if you sit down afterwards and go, hey, did you see what happened tonight? Did you pay attention? What did you see? What should we have done differently? How could we be more faithful? How could we be more effectively engaged in the hearts of the people with the gospel? You know, so that right away you're doing it while you're in ministry. And the third is you've got to do it while you're on mission. I shared that this morning, so I won't unpack that too much more. But I'm convinced that when you lead people on the mission of the gospel, all of their unbelief shows up. And you don't disciple people until you know their unbelief. Once you know their unbelief, you know, remember that Jesus said in John 16, the Spirit, in verse 9, the Spirit's going to convict you of sin in regards to unbelief in me. All sin is connected to unbelief in Jesus and the gospel. All of it. Every sin we commit is connected to our unbelief in Jesus Christ. And what you need to do is you, when you take people on mission, all of their unbelief shows up. 
Because they have all the reasons why they can't do it, all the fears show up, all the insecurity, all the selfishness, all the pride. It just like bubbles to the surface. And then it's your job to say, okay, now how do I bring Jesus to address this unbelief? Because that's how you disciple people. Discipleship is not teaching them discipleship techniques and methodologies. It's grounding them in the gospel in everything so that Jesus is all in all. That's what he wants. If he's not in everything in their life, you're not making disciples of Jesus. You're making disciples of a methodology or making disciples of a particular discipline or whatever it may be. But we're not making disciples of disciplines. We're making disciples of Jesus. So we've got to get to in life, in ministry, on mission. Now, in our context, we realize the gathering doesn't do that. I'm all for the gathering. I'm all for this. I think this is a great thing. But there's no way any of us, I'm going to be able to disciple you. You know that, right? Hopefully, you're going to go back and go, I need to change some things in my life, in my church. And I'm going to share that with some people who love me. And we're going to do this together. And they're going to disciple me as I do it. But we as it came to a conclusion as a church, the most effective way to disciple people has to be in a place where you actually can live life together. You can, can actually do ministry in the everyday together. And you can actually be devoted to a mission together. And if those three things weren't happening, I'm convinced now, after doing this for, for a few years, you won't be very effective in making disciples. Just because you won't know their life well enough. You won't know if they're faithful. So we formed what we called missional communities. I talked about it in our breakout today. And uh, for us, we basically said we want to call all of us to reorient our lives around the truth of the gospel and around a particular mission in such a way that we're living our life together for that mission and we're actually bringing the gospel to bear on all the key issues of our heart when they show up. And we're just going to do that. And I know when I called my missional community together last year, we started with about six or seven adults, and we do this, we start new ones regularly. And uh, I, we started by saying, okay, first of all, we're going to talk about how in this group we're going to speak the truth and love to one another. When Paul says the way we equip or build up the body, he says, speak the truth and love to one another. That's shorthand for speak the gospel to one another. Because what other truth does he know? He says that we might grow up into Christ, we need to understand what he's saying is speak all that is true of Jesus into each other's lives. The grace of the gospel, the power of God that enables us to do what we couldn't do in and of ourselves, we could never accomplish. We speak the, the power of God and the resurrection to give us what we need. We speak the forgiveness of Jesus to remind us that we've been forgiven and cleansed, or whatever it may be. I mean, I, we could go on and on and on, but we're speaking the gospel. Some people think speaking the truth in love means you just got to speak hard words to people once in a while. And what you really mean is tell people they're jerks, right? You ever heard people say, well, sometimes you just got to speak the truth in love. And what they're really saying is you got to tell people where they're screwing up. That's not what I think what Paul is talking about. I think Paul is talking about you're speaking to them in such a way that they grow up in Christ, which means you're speaking to them about Jesus and the sufficiency of the gospel and the hope that's in Jesus. So what does that look like? How do you do that? Well, first of all, it starts with you. You've got to learn to start to take every single thought and make it captive to be obedient to Christ, the scriptures tell us. One thing that I try to do and I'm growing in, and I would encourage you to do this, and even tonight, sit there and go, what are the thoughts that are going through your head? We're going to go, what's going to go through your head later on? And would you capture it and say, is that submissive to the truth of the gospel? Maybe you're going to have a conversation with someone later and during that conversation, you're wondering to yourself, I wonder what this person thinks of me. 
I hope that I impress them. Take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ because you no longer live for the approval of man. Galatians 1 says if you do, you're not a servant of Christ. You're living with another master now. Humans are your master instead of Jesus. The gospel says you're free to need anybody's approval because you've got the approval of God in Christ Jesus that says you're a son and you're loved and accepted and nobody really can change that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so you go like, I don't need to worry about what people think of me. Maybe some of you, you know, you left your, your kids at home with somebody who's watching them and you're thinking quite often, I wonder, I hope they're doing a good job taking care of them. My wife, when we go on trips, she was calling the phone all the time like, man, are they okay? And is everything going all right? And, and you need to be reminded that God loves your children more than you do. Enough to send his son to die on the cross. He's got it. He's good. He'll take care of them. Maybe some of you are thinking, going back to your church, going, man, I, I just wish our church would change. I'd love to see this happen. And, and, and you need to be reminded to take that thought captive and say, he can do more than you ask or imagine. And you just need to keep doing that and say, how do I know that? Because Jesus overcame sin and death. There was a man who was alive. He was dead. Now he's alive again. What more proof do you need that he can overcome what your church is facing? So it's going to start with you. And I would just say, if you aren't overly impressed with the power of the gospel and the grace that God has given you in Christ Jesus to enable you and empower you to do what you can't do on your own, then you're not going to lead people well in it because you won't be that impressed with Jesus. So why would you talk about him? I've been convinced more and more that the reason why there's a problem with evangelism in the church today is not because we don't have enough equipping. It's because we don't have enough affection if our affections were hot for Jesus, we'd talk about him. I, I've never met anybody who has a hard time talking about their fiance. Do you know we're, we are betrothed to the one who purchased us with his life? Do you talk about him like he's the most important person there is? Are your affections hot for him? Now, how do you do this? I'm just going to give you a few things that we do in our community with the, the time that we got, hopefully to give you some tangible ways of how you train your people to speak the gospel to one another in everyday life and live it out in tangible forms. First of all, um, I'd encourage you to think about applying the gospel to the personal stories of the people that you're getting close to. Now, let me back up and just make sure I make it clear one more time. If people are not living life together, on mission together, you won't make disciples. Okay? And I want to just say that as definitively as I can. You can disagree with me on that. I'm convinced. I'm convinced it's how Jesus did it. I'm convinced it's how Paul did it. I'm convinced it's how the church did it. I think it's how we're supposed to do it. I think the normative is if you aren't living life together and doing ministry to one another and mission to the lost, that you're probably not going to make disciples who can make disciples. You might have people who do spiritual disciplines, but that's not a disciple. Okay, doing spiritual disciplines does not make you a disciple of Jesus. In fact, there are going to be a lot of people going to hell that did spiritual disciplines. I'm convinced of it. Because we made them twice a convert to hell by saying, trust in your spiritual disciplines instead of Jesus Christ. You do a good quiet time and have lots of prayer, you're a good Christian. Baloney, so were the Pharisees. Right? And they rejected Jesus. It can't be that. It's got to be people who know how to put their faith in Jesus, walk in Jesus, believe in Jesus. In fact, let me just stop. I want to do this real quick. There's three tenses of the gospel that you need to keep in mind in terms of our salvation. Most people only believe the past tense. We've been saved 
from the penalty of sin. So they, and they don't even believe, many people don't even believe that, as you know, because they're riddled with guilt and shame. Right? And the reason you know people are convinced that Jesus died to forgive them of all their sins is they no longer live with guilt and shame. And if when they sin, it takes them three or four days to get back to the cross and, and just revel in the grace of the gospel that's been given to us in Jesus Christ, then you know that there's still a, a great deal of unbelief in the finished work of Jesus to pay for their sins, right? Because of what they're doing, and you've done this, if you've fallen into a particular sin in a particular time in your life, you go, man, I, I just, it's horrible, I hate that. And you beat yourself up, and it's like you're putting yourself on a cross, thinking that by beating yourself up, God will somehow be satisfied that you did enough uh, self-mutilation so that you can pay for your sin yourself. And that's all unbelief in the gospel, isn't it? Living in guilt and shame is unbelief in the gospel. And so when we, when we sin, the first thing we should do is get to the foot of the cross and be overwhelmed with the grace that's given to us in Jesus. I was talking to a young man one day, and he was struggling with, looking at pornography, and I asked him, how many days did it take you after you jump back into looking at stuff you shouldn't have to get back to the cross and revel in the grace of Jesus? And he said, sometimes it takes three or four days. I said, now who's getting glory for those three or four days? Who is getting glory for those three or four days? He is. Jesus isn't. It's all about him for those three or four days. And so when you get to the foot of the cross and the Spirit again reminds you that your sins were fully paid for and that God has cleansed you and you have a clear conscience before God and that you're forgiven and accepted and loved, what happens to you? He said, I praise Jesus. I said, now why wouldn't we get to the cross right away so we can praise him immediately? Have you ever taught your people, like, when you sin, go right to the cross right away? Don't waste time. Do you know what that's what sanctification is? Is it's, it's when the cross is here and my sin is over here that, and I take three days to get back to the cross. When I get to two days to get back to the cross and one day to get back to the cross and someday I'm finally at the place where when I sin, I go right to the cross. What happens? Eventually I get on the other side of the cross and I go, why would I keep on sinning? This is too amazing. Why would I take advantage of that, of that grace? I should be so um, um, just overcome with gratitude for what he's done for me. So do your people know the reality of the past work, that they've been saved from the penalty of sin? Do they know the future, the present, that they're being saved from the power of sin right now? That it's still working. That His grace is sufficient for us. And, and we boast in our weakness because it's in our weakness that the power of Christ is made perfect. Do they know that? Do they celebrate their inadequacies and their inability to do anything good apart from Jesus? And do they know the future reality of salvation, that he, you will be saved from the ultimate presence of sin, that he's coming back and he will make all things right? And you know how you know that? People are not living with fear about the future. They're not doomsday people. They're, they're longing for the future. They can't wait for the future because the future is only going to get better, not worse. Jesus is going to return. He's going to make it right. New heaven, new earth. And they believe that. So they don't live in fear. So do they know that? Well, how do you start to help them grow in that? What are some tangible ways? I've learned that one thing you need to do, if you're living in proximity with each other and you know each other's lives, and for us, every single elder in our church has to be leading or being in a missional community because we think it's a normative thing for the church to live this way. And so anything we think the church should normatively do, we expect all of our elders to lead by example. 
Which just as a side note, pastors, if you're asking your church to do something you're not doing, you're a hypocrite. Don't do that. At least normative stuff. So if you're expecting everybody to have friends that don't know Christ, and you're going to share the gospel with those people, you better lead the way. So we're in these groups, and one of the things we encourage people to do is get to know each other's stories and then apply the gospel to their story. Randy is a guy who's with me right now. Some of you have met him, and I'd encourage you to talk to him. You'll learn a lot from him. He really is a great gospel guy. He's really learning and growing a ton in the gospel. And um, as I've gotten to know his story, and, and he shared his story uh, with me and in our missional community, I got to know about his father and the way he was brought up, and he came from a very abusive situation. And his father was very unfaithful and left his family and um, was out with other women. And uh, I remember one day we were, we were praying together. And because I know Randy's story, I'm listening with gospel ears to how the gospel is transforming his story. Because, see, I want to disciple him. I don't want to just teach him how to do ministry. I want the gospel to grip his life so much that when he does ministry, it's always Jesus flowing out of him, not just techniques that I've trained him in. Techniques are easy. The power of the gospel is transformative. We need that. And so he's praying one day, and, he, and I asked his permission to share this, and he, he, he was praying kind of like this. And you've probably heard people pray like this before too. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you might help us and that we would just, Lord Jesus, reach our neighbors. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd help us uh, reach out to these people. Lord Jesus, would you just give us the faith? And, and it's just kind of like, Lord Jesus, this, and Lord Jesus, that, and would you just? And, and it, this whole deal, and it kind of went on. And I, one point we were done praying together, and we pray together once a week. And I believe you disciple people. One of the ways you best disciple people is by praying with them, because in their prayers you see what they believe. And so I'm paying attention to what he believes. And, and I, I, after we get done praying, I stop and I said, Randy, can I just ask you, um, I've been noticing regularly in your prayer that I, I don't think I've, I've really ever heard you pray to God as Father. And I just wonder, you know, is that one of the thoughts that comes to your mind when you pray, that you're talking to your Father in heaven who loves you and who, who would, is always for you, just... He cares about you so much. Do, do, you, do you realize that because of what Jesus has done, you can approach the throne of grace in your time of need with boldness? That you don't need to have this mantra of saying his name over and over again or saying just in front of everything as though you're not sure he really wants to help you, that he wants to help you and he's for you. He's your father. He's given you every good thing in Jesus Christ. He's withheld nothing from you. Do you believe that? And he was, you know, at first, it, and you can talk to him, it offended him. Uh, by the way, I think that's what happens when we say words like, when we ask questions and they reveal the heart, they're often hard words. And that tells you you love somebody when you're willing to have that hard conversation. And, and uh, he said, you know, he said, well, I, I knew he believed what I said. Theologically, he, he could have quoted exactly what I said. But I said, I don't see it showing up in your prayers, and it seems like it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So I'm just wondering how much your own story has affected the way you see the Father in heaven, and if, if, if that could be changed by the way you see him giving his son for you. And he, he, he would tell you he was still pretty angry at me for a while and a bit offended. And then he went off into his bedroom later that day and got on his knees and just started. And I said, I just want to encourage you to start calling him your father. And he just started saying, Father, Father, Father. And all of a sudden he just broke and he started to weep. And, and he's just overwhelmed with the love of God. 
as his father. I wouldn't know that about Randy if I didn't pray with him. I wouldn't know that about Randy if I didn't know his story. I wouldn't know that about Randy if I didn't watch his life. He's a changed person because of that one moment that God enabled me to speak the truth of the gospel into his life and he embraced God as his father in a whole fresh way and the Spirit did something in that moment. But it wouldn't have happened just me preaching about it because he would have sat there and listened to me talk about God as Father and go, I agree, that's what the Bible says. It's good theology, it's true. But until I'm in his life and I watch whether or not he lives it and believes it, I won't really know if he really believes it, will I? So listen to people's stories. One of the things I encourage people to do is have people share their stories with gospel ears, listening for where those stories are not quite yet redeemed fully by the gospel. And you can listen to them lots of ways. If they've been abused, are you listening for Jesus was abused voluntarily on our behalf to heal our wounds? And he went and gave forgiveness to those who abused him so that you could also forgive those who abused you. And if you don't know how much he's loved you and forgiven you and that you actually abused him because you put him on a cross with your sin, and until you embrace the fact that we're the abusers, you'll never be able to forgive any abusers because until you realize that God forgave you for abusing his son, you'll never know what it's like to know forgiveness that you could give to someone else. So you're listening to that story of abuse. And I know right now there's several of you in this room that that's happened to. Has that been redeemed by the gospel? Have you experienced the healing of the, of the power of Jesus, his death, his blood shed that you might be healed? Have you been able to forgive those who deeply wounded you because you've been forgiven way more? You killed the Son of God. You and I did. That's the worst sin there is. It doesn't get worse than that. We put him on a cross. So we, are you listening with those ears, listening to the stories, watching how their story affects their life, bringing the gospel to bear on it? Second, something I've learned to try. Gosh, I only have two minutes. Oh, boy. Something else that I've learned to try is, um, is expressing the gospel through communion with one another. Now, I know you all come from different uh, probably backgrounds in how you do communion, but I, I, I want to just encourage you and challenge you to get back to the biblical picture of communion, and that is that it was around a table with people together, and it was regular people administrating communion to one another. That's, that's exactly what you had happening at the Agape Feast. They would get together in their homes regularly and break bread, and they would remember Jesus. And so we do this regularly in our missional community, and one thing we started to do is we'd say, I want you to identify your need, gospel need, in the elements. So you might look at the bread and go, Man, I really need to be reminded that his body was given for me. His righteousness was sufficient for me in exchange for me. Or his blood was poured out to forgive me in my rebellion and sin. So I said, let's do this. I remember the first time we did this, I said, in our missional community, what I want us to do tonight is I'm going to start and I'm going to acknowledge my gospel need in the elements as I talk about the elements. And then I'm going to ask one of you to minister the gospel to me by presenting the elements as an answer to my gospel need. So I said, okay, the bread, it was January, I looked back. There's only one time I looked back with regret in the year, and it's usually January for me, and I wish I'd done more ministry. And so I was telling them I'm pretty depressed. I wish a whole lot more had gotten accomplished, and I know that, that I'm totally trusting in my own works, and that's why I'm depressed, because my works weren't enough this year, just like every year. And, uh, and I'm looking at the bread, and I'm thinking, Jesus, I know 
You are my righteousness. I need that reminder today. And so I said, someone said, they took the bread and they said, Jeff, Jesus' righteousness is sufficient for you and all the works you did this last year don't measure up. So one, you need his blood to forgive you of thinking they do. And you also need his, the, his body and the bread to remind you that his righteousness is way better and sufficient for you. And then we went around the room, and Nikki, who has a lot of bad stuff going on in her life in her past, she said, I'm looking at this, and I'm just, I'm thinking of, she just became a Christian, she's 67 years old, and she said, I'm thinking of 67 years of my wasted life, and I look at the cup, and I go, could he have forgiven me for all of that sin? And someone took the cup and said, Nikki, Jesus poured out his blood to forgive you of all 67 years of living for yourself. And it's all taken care of. And his righteousness made up for all of those 67 years of living for yourself. It's sufficient. And then they presented her the elements. And we did that like eight or nine times. And you can just imagine by the end, it's a worship service. Because you just magnify Jesus over and over again. And what we trained our people to do in that moment is acknowledge their need for the gospel. Which, by the way, if you want to learn how to proclaim the gospel, you've got to be able to acknowledge your need for it regularly. If you don't know how to acknowledge your own need for the gospel, you're not going to be able to speak into other people's need. The second thing that we train them how to do is how to listen to the gospel need in someone else and then contextualize the gospel uniquely to that need. Not just go like, well, let me give you four spiritual laws and we all did the same repetitive exercise. No, every single gospel proclamation into someone's need was different, but it was the same gospel. That's how we're learning how to train our people around the table. I actually think that we need to do that a whole lot more. I think that the reason why we've been given these elements to remember men is so that we wouldn't forget and we'd practice proclaiming his, his work until he returns through it. Right? Isn't that one of the reasons why we've been given it? So we do it to each other. Even in our gatherings, our large gatherings, we have communion every single week and they break up into groups and we ask them to proclaim the gospel truth to each other in light of the message they just heard. Because I want them to learn how to keep speaking the gospel in light of the context and in light of the real needs that are going on around them. Do you see how this is a quipping mindset, but it's gospel-centered? I, I could give you like, I don't have time, but I could give you a whole lot more ways in which we do this. I want to, if it's okay, can I end with a story? Would that be all right, Mark? I'm a, you're the boss. Okay, great. The last way that I've learned to do this that I think is really helpful is teach your people to identify the idolatry that God's people are worshiping. Okay, and you guys yourself have them yourself. You know that. And, um, and, and then when you identify what it is that they, and you know how you know what a God is? It's because it's the thing that they're most afraid of losing or it's the thing that most shapes their world it's the thing that is kind of the pinnacle of what makes them do what they do. That's their God. In the church, many of us, our God are our children, right? If they turn out well, we feel great about ourselves. If they fail, we feel lousy about ourselves. So we put all of our energy into making them the best little gods we can because if they turn out to be good little gods, we feel like we've been justified, right? This is true. This is happening all the time in the church. You've got to be careful about the idolatry of family in the church. Well, Nikki, this woman I just told you about, one day she came over our house, and the way mission works for us is we have kind of an open-door policy, and people can come and go in our life. We have an empty table or a seat at the table usually. They can come and eat at our table because we want to do ministry in the everyday life, not in the, the kind of crazy, unique places. The only way people learn how to do ministry is in the event you pull off, they'll think that's what ministry primarily is. 
I want them to learn that ministry is the everyday stuff, and the gathering on Sunday is very unique. It's important. It's just not the norm in terms of everyday life. So Nikki shows up one day at our house. She's not yet a believer. She tells us about this man in her life who's just deeply wounding her and taking advantage of her. And she's just hungry for love and affection because she lost her husband. And so she's telling us about him at one point. And I, I, I'd love to have another glass. Here we go. At one point, she's talking. And um, we've got, we had some glasses out in front of us. And she's talking. I kinda, I'm listening to her. And I, I'm listening. I put these two glasses together on the table like that just to make a point, and you'll see where I'm going. And as she talks, I keep listening, and go, I, I start, and I, I put my hand on this glass, and I go, Nikki, I don't know if you realize this, but you're worshiping this man. She's like, that's disgusting. I, I can't stand this man. So no, no, you're worshiping him. He's your God. She's like, he's not my God. He's just a man. I go, yeah, but everything you do is based upon what he is about. And when you feel great about yourself, it's because he thinks you're great. And when he thinks you're bad, you think you're bad. And when he praises you, you feel loved and cared for. And when he rejects you, you feel rejected. Your whole world rises and falls on this man's opinion of you. That's called worship. Now, I want to tell you about a different man. Because what you're longing for is a perfect man. That's what you are. And what you need to do, by the way, step out of this. When you identify their idol, you've got to show them that Jesus is the better of whatever it is they're worshiping. And so what I did at this point, I said, Nikki, I want, you to, I want to tell you about Jesus. Jesus is the man you're looking for. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never, ever reject you. And when you reject him, he will continue to pursue you. And he will love you even when you spit in his face. And he will never use you. He will never abuse you. He will never leave you. He, he loves you enough to give his life for you. And she's like, yeah, but I, I just want a man with flesh on him. And I said, Jesus put on flesh for you. Do you understand that he was God, eternal, and he took on flesh and for you and me? He became a human forever. He's a human. Do you see what he did for you so that you'd have a perfect man? She's like, yeah, but I just want him here. I said, he is here. Yeah, but I don't see him. I said, no, he's here. He's present. She goes, no, what I really want is I want a guy like you, Jeff. Which is a little weird, you know, 67-year-old woman, my wife's next to me, I'm like, hey, I'm already married, you know, and, and, uh, and I, I said, no, no, Nikki, you don't want me, because you know what I'm like? Without Jesus, I'm just like this guy. I use people, I abuse people, I, I let people live for my approval, for my pleasure, I do whatever I can to make my world work with their, at their expense. So, but you, what you want in me, what you've seen in me is Jesus. What you've seen in me that's attractive, that's good, that's godly, that's what you're longing for, is Jesus working his life out in me. That's what you're seeing. And uh, I, I, we, we, we did that little routine many, many times, by the way. Just set two glasses out. Every time she'd start talking about the things she was trusting, I'd put two glasses out, and she started to realize what I was doing. I said, let's talk about your idol again. And let's talk about Jesus and how he's so much better. And I remember the night when when Nikki showed up at our house, we had shared the gospel with her so many times. We had invited her in our home. We had fixed her car. We'd been working on her, her backyard. We'd been cleaning it all up. I remember she showed up one day, and, and she, she came over, and she said, I want you to know um, I was up all night long, and I was confessing my sin to God, and I knew he forgave me. And then I started praying for all those people 
that have hurt me over my life, and I just ask that God would forgive them. Ah, I was thinking, oh, it sounds like she got saved. And so I said, well, what, tell me, what do you think of Jesus now? That's a key, by the way. Don't just think because someone prays a prayer that they're a Christian. Ask them what they think of Jesus. If they don't profess him as their Savior and Lord, if they don't look at him as the hope, if they just look at him as a way to get out of hell, I'm not sure that they're actually his yet. Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So I said, what is Jesus to you now? And she said, Jesus is my father. And I'm going, wait a minute, that's not right. The Trinity, yes, he's the son. And the spirit quickened in my heart and said, no, you know, remember, remember Nikki's story. You've listened to her story enough. Remember her story about her father. Think of all the men that have left her and what she's longing for a man who will love her like a dad. And then, and then the spirit quickened my heart to remember that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And I said, I, th I think I get what you're saying, Nikki. Are you saying that when you see Jesus, you realize that the father loves you? And she goes, yeah. So when you see Jesus, do you, realize, do you believe that the Father forgave you? Yes. When you look at Jesus, do you believe that you're loved and accepted and you're his own? Yes. I said, you're a child of God then. A few months later, we got to baptize Nikki. The very next week, Nikki was out in her neighborhood talking to a young guy who's not a believer. Actually, he's not that young. He's my age. He's 40. I guess 40 is young in this room, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. And... Uh, she came and told me, she said, Aaron was talking to me about how he just wants a woman so bad. And I told him, see, Aaron, the problem is, is you're thinking a woman's going to fix it for you. But what really needs to happen is your heart needs to be changed. And he said, I got to get in better shape so that women will like me. She says, no, no, no. God looks at the, doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so she told me that. I'm like, dang it. Like in one week, she's already talking about this stuff with people. Why? Because we were training her in life all the way along how to do ministry and how to share the gospel. So when she became a Christian, she believed that her job was to start joining us in the work of doing ministry and mission in everyday life. Right? See, if we were teaching the church to do this all the way to conversion, then people who are getting converted would know that when they're saying yes to Jesus, they're saying yes to what just happened to them too, which is that they're now sent out to be the ones who make disciples and bring the gospel to bear on everybody's life around them. Do you want that? We've got to figure out how to rearrange our churches to make sure that's happening. Because if it's not happening, we're not being faithful to what we've been called to do, pastors and leaders. Let me pray for us that God would make us faithful. Lord Jesus, it is such a privilege to just get to talk about you. People have lots of things they like to talk about, but we have the best thing. And that your spirit would empower us to talk about you this way, that's amazing. And that people like Nikki's lives could be changed and we could be a part of that. What a blessing. Father, I pray that all of us would have both the vision to hope and believe that you might do that with all the people in our church. That they would have that same joy of seeing lives being transformed by the gospel. And I pray you'd make us faithful to lead our churches and to equip them and to share ministry with them and to send them out to do it. I pray we wouldn't put our confidence in mechanisms or methods or techniques, but in Jesus and the gospel. And that we just keep training our people by speaking the truth of the gospel in their life over and over and over again. Help us to be faithful to that for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.